0: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Jerry over there, the trio known as Stuff You Should Know. The trio. Mm. Jerry came to our live show. I know. I'm still a little <laughs> giddy
0: and um, in amazement. Uh, it's been a while. Jairs? Yes. I mean, I know it's not personal, but it's just remember she used to actually go on tour with us before she got a family. <laughs>
1: <laughs> before she checked out.
0: Yeah. Decided uh, she remember. loved other people more than us.
1: I'd also like to point out the um, fact that Jerry is writhing in discomfort right now, Chuck. Yeah. You were really sticking it to her. No, she's fine. Um, well, I, it was a great show, probably because Jerry was there. And everybody, well, I guess you would have heard it by now because these are coming out after Christmas. Yeah. Time Warp. Yeah. Let, <laughs> let's do the Time Warp <laughs> dance,
0: Chuck. And everybody's like, gee, sure it'd be nice to see some of the things you're talking about. Hmm. Which you can do? Uh, maybe next year. Uh, you mean in person? Yeah. If we, you, you want to do another live Christmas show? Sure. Yeah, I'm done with that. I mean, we paid money for Christmas decorations. <laughs> we did. <laughs> I feel like we need to reuse those.
1: Yep. Hopefully everybody has heard it already and now they're like, yes, I know exactly what these guys are talking about. And I'm, I'm enjoying this horribly awkward intro diversion. No, it's not awkward. Speaking of intro diversions, Chuck, I want to mention two things. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Stuff Network has a ton of really good shows. Yes. And there's one that I was on recently called Behind the Bastards. Oh. I was on a two-parter. Nice. It was it was nice. So, Robert Evans is the host, and he basically just does tons of research about some of the worst human beings who have ever lived, many of whom are celebrated in some quarters, and he just kind of tears them down to size. Did you do a show on me? No. <laughs> You're just celebrated. There's no tearing you down. Oh, I'm sure people tear me down. I don't care. The ones that I uh, sat in on were um, uh, were based on scientific racism. Oh wow! The history of scientific racism and how it's been used to justify like <laughs> colonialism and all sorts of stuff, and the, sure. the level of of research this cat does is astounding. Yeah, it's a good show. It is. It's a great show. So um, I was on that, but that's a good maybe a good primer. But really, any behind the bastards would be a great place to start.
0: Yeah, that show was a and I don't want to say su- surprising success because Robert's awesome, but. Um, I think everyone was just like, wow, look at this thing. Look at him go. (laughs) Look at him go.
1: (laughs) And we've got another new show, actually, from our pals at Stuff to Blow Your Mind, Joe and Robert. Yes. They just launched a show called Invention. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember if they went with the exclamation point or not, but it's just awesome
0: because I, th- I think no but that uh boy their album art is so cool it's it's really
1: great it's just a cool maze where you're just waiting for a minotaur to leap out
0: yeah and for the people that are like album art what are you talking about did they record an LP uh little industry lingo everybody the little icons that you see on your uh podcast players that's mm-hmm. called album art mm-hmm. in the industry for some reason yeah no I still haven't figured that one out
1: uh, I think it's just a holdover from um,
0: iTunes days. I guess, but like what would be funny if they called it like uh, the Casingle art. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> that would be pretty funny, actually.
0: Still never bought a Casingle in my life.
1: Oh, I have.
0: Yeah. I, think I don't remember what this. they
1: were, but <laughs> I have. So, anyway, go check out Invention. You're going to love it. If you're a stuff to blow your mind fan, it's Joe and Robert doing their thing, but on different topics. You're just going to love it. And then, if you're not a stuff to blow your mind fan, well, you're welcome for introducing you to two awesome podcasts at once.
0: Yeah, those guys are great.
1: Yeah. So, uh, okay. Let's talk about our own thing, okay? Let's do our own stuff. Yeah. Now. What about us? So we're talking, let's get in the Wayback Machine. And we need to put on our um, high-temperature protective suits that we use to hang out on volcanoes sometimes.
0: Well, and also our low-temperature protective suits are in the back. They are. We don't need them for this one.
1: Well, what day are we going to? We're going to June 30th, 1908. So the temperature is probably about seventy six. 70 degrees. Actually, early in the morning, we're going to get there around around 7 a.m. to give ourselves some time to get set up. But 7 a.m. on June 30th, 1908, in the uh, Russian wilderness around the podkamenya Tunguska, which
0: means the Stony
1: Tunguska River. Mm-hmm. Um, it was probably about 50 degrees, we'll say, okay?
0: Yeah, which is, I mean, that is like... Choice summertime weather for the Siberian plateau.
1: Yeah, and this place is gorgeous. So the the Stony Tunguska River is a nice wide meandering slow river, and it's named Stony because the bottom is all beautiful pebbles. Yeah. And it just kind of its banks are not really well defined. It just kind of goes into the land and swampland. Yeah. And then suddenly the, <laughs> the the land rises upward into ridges with huge, tall evergreens everywhere. It's just Gorgeous.
0: I love it here. Uh, the, you know what we call those rocks in the south? Skipping rocks.
1: Oh, they are skipping rocks.
0: They call them that in Russia, too. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Skipinsky rocks. <laughs> Emily the other day was like, I wish I could skip rocks. And I was like, dude, you just got to get the right rocks.
1: That's really the key. Yeah. I mean,
0: sure, there's techniques
1: in the wrist and everything. Oh, yeah. But it, it really is the rock. Although uh, so, uh, there are people who can skip just about any rock you can hand them.
0: Well, that I, I'm a pretty good skipper, but uh, you still need those good little uh, smooth little river rocks. It's true. It makes it way easier for sure. Yeah.
1: So in this beautiful place, I, I also failed to mention there's lots of reindeer wandering around, and they're not wild. They're actually being herded yeah. by the uh, Evenki people, also known as the Tungus. Um, who are uh, basically nomadic reindeer herders that live in the area. Yeah, these are working deer. Right. So everything's pretty idyllic and sweet and nice. It's the Siberian summer. And then all of a sudden, there's a a streak of cloud across the sky, a fireball at the tip. It looks like about a spear. And then all of a sudden, this is 7.17 a.m. local time, all of a sudden that fireball disappears. And then a huge flash of light explodes in the sky. And that's followed very quickly by a huge burst of heat. And then after that is followed by a huge shockwave. And a massive explosion has just taken place the likes of which have never been seen in recorded human history. Yeah, where are we? Are we dead now? No, we're in our protective bubble. Since oh, okay. we're actually visiting from another time, we're still in this time. Okay. We're just kind of visiting as in like a movie. I, I never really quite wrapped my head around the physics of it, but we're safe. Okay, good. We're not dead. <laughs> now, if Jerry killed us while we were paying attention to um, the Tunguska blast, in this life we would be dead. <laughs>
0: Yeah, when you talk about explosions, um, this was, and depending on where you look, uh, it was something in the order of 100 to 1,000 times more powerful than the uh, Hiroshima atomic bomb. I did the math. I saw 200 to 2,000 times more powerful. Yeah, man, th- this that's the thing when you're talking about explosions in 1908. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's going to be but- a range.
1: But the thing is, the Hiroshima bomb was 15 kilotons, 15,000 tons of TNT
0: yield. Yeah, it was a big explosion, uh, so much so, and we'll get to more details, but supposedly you could see the light from this thing as far away as London.
1: Yeah, there was a lot of worldwide effects that happened from it. Yeah. So, the Hiroshima one was 15 kilotons. This is an estimated 3 to 30 megatons, million tons of TNT. Just an astoundingly greater explosive force. And it just happened out of the blue, literally out of the clear blue sky uh, on this day on June 30th,
0: 1908. Yep, that's right. And... uh... Thankfully, it's not a, a very populated area, but there there are people there, mm-hmm. and there are uh, you know native uh, tribes people that make their way there, and they live in huts and they raise those reindeer. And while there weren't a lot of people there, it it created uh, it was a, it was an awful thing if you lived in the area. Some people died of of shock and heart attacks. Uh, reindeer died. Huts were leveled. It really kind of wiped out the way of life for these people.
1: Yeah, yeah, big time. Because I mean, like, if you live in Siberia, you're spending your summer like preparing for the winter, and this blast like just leveled their supplies, the deer, the the reindeer that they depend on. It like had a huge impact on them. And some people, some some people did die. Although I think um, no one died directly, like being blown to bits. By the blast, it was like um, elderly people had heart attacks and things like that.
0: Yeah, and it ended up, uh, it was a very interesting pattern that emerged here. So, these trees were were flattened out in a radial pattern that pointed away from the center of this explosion mm-hmm. uh, over an area. This was about, like, close to 775 square miles. <laughs> oh, my God. Which is a huge, huge explosion. Mm-hmm. Uh there were trees that remained standing, and this is really interesting. But there were no branches, no leaves, no uh, no needles or anything. They were just basically the the stem and the trunk of the trees, bare, standing straight up.
1: Yeah, and that that was those trees were right in the middle of the the blast, the radio blast pattern.
0: Yeah, and the fact that they were basically just stripped bare means that it was a, a very huge but super fast impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, that blasted all those branches off without affecting the the tree itself.
1: Yeah. So the this this blast, this explosion, this very hot, fast explosion, actually lit the trees on fire from the temperature that formed the leading edge of the explosion, and then the shock wave that followed that moved the air actually put the fire out. So they were like flash charred and then immediately extinguished.
0: Yeah. There's one quote here from uh, I mean. Because this was 1908, there's not a lot of direct accounts. But they do have a few, and we'll talk about how in a minute. But uh, this is one. A hot wind blew past us. The ground and all the huts trembled, causing the sod packing to fall from the ceilings. The glass was blasted out of the window frames. Mm-hmm. Scary moment.
1: Yeah, no, I can't even imagine. Supposedly, the, um, the Evenki people believed that their god, Ogdi... Who is, I think, the god of either lightning or fire or thunder, one of those. Um, I've seen different accounts of it. Um, they, that, they assumed, so imagine this, like you're the only people, that you're, the only people are you, some uh, reindeer herding tribes people who live in the area. Um, and this happens, and you have no scientific frame of reference for it. And um, you believe your god came to punish you, wipe out all of your stores and all of your reindeer and everything. And then that's just what you had to live with, because you were in such a remote area. N- no one knew about this. No one knew that this happened for a very long time. Actually, like I think some of the local papers began to report it by the end of the summer. But the the larger world had had no real idea what had happened, even though there were effects worldwide. But no one could no one traced it back to this this moment in Siberia for decades, or at least a full decade, uh, I think actually two.
0: Yeah, and it wasn't like uh, wasn't like the scientific community just descended upon this place right? ever, really. Like they've, and, and we'll talk about some of the superstars of uh, particularly this one man that went and investigated, but uh, one, I mean, that's one of the reasons that we still don't know exactly what happened. Uh, we have a pretty good idea, which we'll save for later. But there aren't. Uh, this was a singular event. It's not the kind of thing that we could say. Well, this is like that other thing that happened. Right. Exactly.
1: Yes. Yeah. 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 It's. It's. There's nothing like it. Although there, they think that there was at least one other thing that happened like it in the 20th century. Um, actually, now two two things have happened that are similar to it. So we're kind of dancing around it a little bit. Um, but let me tell you. Let me point out one thing that that has happened. Even though this is considered far and away the largest cosmic, I guess, explosion that you that that we we have ever recorded, there was something else that happened in Brazil in 1930. Yeah, near the Carusa. I think I'm saying that right. River. Sure. Um, where. There was a, a very similar event, huge explosion in the sky, um, scared the uh, bejesus out of the indigenous tribes living there, burned a significant portion of the Amazon for a full month. Um, and there was a Jesuit missionary who um, came along five days after and got a lot of firsthand accounts from that one. But they think it was similar, but much smaller than Tunguska.
0: Yeah, and and the mystery of this whole thing... Uh, has led to some weird theories uh, that we'll hit on later that are I mean some of them are of course just like aliens and beasts and things like that which is <laughs> Beast. we obviously know that's not the case but uh it it still remains somewhat of a mystery after you know a hundred plus years
1: right um and then so there's one other that this wasn't in recorded history as far as we consider recorded history typically but there there's evidence that this happened one other time and then this time, uh, people weren't so lucky. At something like about thirty-five hundred years ago, around the Dead Sea, um, there was a, a large area. I think about five hundred square kilometers wide, which is a pretty significant amount of land that was just wiped bare of of life, including humans living in the area at the time, and that it was an explosion from the sky. And it wiped out uh, one village in particular called Tal-el-Hammam. And get this, Chuck. You know what Tal-el-Hammam was also called at this time 3,500 years ago? Mm, no. Sodom. Oh, interesting. So they think that this is where the uh, the legend of Sodom being wiped out right. comes from, that it was actually uh, uh, an explosion, much like Tunguska. And they found shards of um, like pottery from the time that the outsides have been turned to glass some of the particles inside have been gasified. And for this to have happened without like doing anything more to the, to the pottery means that it happened like in an instant and that the air temperature was suddenly about 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Amazing. And the other thing that happened too, and this I think also kind of bolstered the um, Sodom legend, was that um, a lot of the Dead Sea salts were pushed across the land Um, over this huge amount of land and took like what was once fertile and turned it into uh, like dead, sterile land because it was salted. And it took something like 600 years for the area to recover from that. Wow. Isn't that fascinating? It sure is. Let's take a break because I think you can uh, tell I'm getting a little worked up here. Indeed. All right. Well, we'll be right back, everybody, with more amazingness. All right, dude, so from the outset, some uh, scientific-minded types were like, well, uh, I'm hearing reports of this, this weird event that happened in 1908 in Tunguska, the Tunguska area, and it sounds to me a lot like a meteorite. So I'm going to go check out, you know, the whole thing and, and try to find this meteorite.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was one of the early theories. Uh, there were seismographs that did register some activity. So some people thought it was an earthquake at first. Yeah. Uh, it lit up the sky um, and created this massive dust plume. So that's where people in, like, London and Germany, um, they said that they could read newspapers at midnight, mm-hmm. uh, even that far away. So it was it was causing a little bit of commotion in the scientific community. Uh, and still, you know, consider this as... Was 1908. Um, it's hard for a word to get around, so you can hardly blame people if you know this event happened kind of in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. in 1908, and it didn't exactly like you know shake the world. Uh, but there was one man, uh, and this was uh, this was later on. His name was uh, Leonid Kulik, and he was a he was a scientist. He had a pretty interesting life and career. Um, he was born in 1883. Uh, in Estonia, uh, which was later part of the Soviet Union, he studied math and he studied science. He fought in both World War One and World War Two, which is really uh, interesting because uh, I'm curious about the number of people who were unfortunate enough to experience both those wars. Yeah, there
1: were probably a lot.
0: Not a ton. I mean, if you do the math, like you would have had to have been pretty young and then pretty old. I gotcha. For so a soldier. not that many. To have fought in both of these. Right. Um. But in 1921, uh, he had the task of examining uh, meteorites within the Soviet Union, and that's where I got the impression that the first sort of scientific fire was lit under his his butt to uh, to get into studying meteorites.
1: Yeah. Well, no, he was already studying meteorites, and he heard some he read some of those local press clippings that had had been written like 10, 10 or twelve years before, and that. That's he kind of put pieced together like, oh, this sounds a lot like a meteorite impact. My job is already to go find meteorites because they, you know, when they strike the ground, they have all of this rich mineral ore with them. So I'm going to go find it and um, the government can come mine it. And that's my job. So he, if, if Leonid Kulik had not bred some of these accounts and then traveled to the area. Um, we would probably not have anywhere near the kind of um understanding or awareness of the um the 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 impact w- 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 that we have today.
0: <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> was that
1: succinct enough for
0: you? Yes, I think so. Okay, good. So like I was saying, in nineteen twenty one he was uh, he was given the task of studying meteorites in the Soviet Union. And so by the time nineteen twenty seven rolls around, he's got a pretty good uh, knowledge bed that he's sleeping on every night. (laughs) Right. So he makes his first – he makes eventually three trips here to try and study things. The first one, unfortunately, he didn't even find the site because there was poor mapping going on. Uh, He was really sort of um, charting new territory, exploring this area, and was just getting help from anyone he could. A lot of people were scared to go there Mm -hmm. because of, you know, they thought it was a – uh, judgment from the gods. Yeah, Ogdi. Yeah, so it was, um, it was slow going. So that that first expedition in 1927 was basically to just say, "Hey, I think I know where this actually happened." Like that's how rudimentary things were back then.
1: Yeah, he, um, he, I think. So was it the the first expedition in 1927? He didn't make it in. Did
0: he also make it the same year, or was that a different year? Did he also make it back there the same year? Yeah. Uh well I saw that he went in 27, 28 and 29.
1: Okay, so uh wh- whatever time he made it in there, he made it in there at least once. There one the first time. And he knew like pretty much right off the bat that he had had found the site because all around there were trees that were laying on their sides but they were all pointing in the same direction, which you just don't see very often.
0: Yeah, for sure. And then that, you know, those at the center, of those trees standing straight up with with nothing there was another pretty good indication.
1: Yeah. So the thing the thing about Leonid Kulik is is that he um, he was very very frustrated. Like again, he was a meteor hunter. Like this was his his thing. Um, so he fully expected to find a, an impact crater and hopefully the meteorite that that had all sorts of iron ore, or whatever ore um, it, it bore, for him to go back and tell everybody about. But he couldn't. He could not find this. Um, he did find those trees standing upright at the center that indicated that the reason they weren't blown over was because the, the force had blown directly down on top of them. So he, he knew he'd found the center, but there was no sign of an impact crater. And he suspected that there was a, a swamp in the south, just south of the, um, the place where the trees still stood, that was hiding the the impact crater and the meteorite itself, and I think that's kind of like what he he went to his grave believing that he just could never find it because the swamp had basically swallowed it up.
0: Yeah, which you know uh, you can't blame the guy in the in the nineteen twenties. Sure, it was a pretty decent uh, idea because he and again, not, you know, he had he had no idea that. Uh, well, should we go ahead and say what people think happened?
1: Oh. Okay, all right, let's do it.
0: Yeah, he had no idea that a meteor could explode pre-impact, which is basically what most people think happened now.
1: Yes. Yeah, he died in a Nazi, sorry, a Nazi prison camp in World War II. Yeah. Uh so he would not have been had the benefit of that knowledge that came later on. I think starting in the 50s they started to really suspect that. Yeah. But at the time Um, When he came back and said, this is definitely, like, look at these pictures. An explosion, unlike the kind that we are even remotely capable of creating here on Earth, so therefore a natural explosion, took place here. I have photographic evidence here. I've interviewed locals who were there. So firsthand accounts of the experience. I've documented all this stuff, and I cannot find the meteorite or the impact crater there's this sum total of all the info that I can provide. And some people took that and pieced it together to mean that, well, maybe it was a comet impact then, because comets are largely icy. They're rocky and they have minerals and stuff as well, but they're not like a, an asteroid or a meteoroid where they're 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 made mostly of rock or metal. They're made mostly of ice. So when it does explode, it would just kind of evaporate. And it might have the same kind of impact, but it would also not leave a crater or any real remnants of itself behind. So, for a very long time, and among some quarters, that still explains the Tunguska event, that it was a comet impact rather than a a meteor. Yeah, it's like that riddle. Yeah, the one where the guy's hanging and there's a puddle of water? Yeah, that's it. I love that
0: one. (laughs) Kulik was like, there's a big puddle of water here. Actually, he thought the swamp swallowed it, but... uh, you know, that doesn't explain it. And look, I will say, like, although, like, I feel bad for the guy that he died, uh, well, obviously died in prison camp, that's the worst thing, mm-hmm. but that he died not really getting to the bottom of this, but he kind of kept that drumbeat going uh, for people to study this, took those great photographs, interviewed locals, and really did a lot of the groundwork uh, for other people later to build on.
1: Yeah, like, if, if he hadn't, taken this expedition on himself and really gone in and like pieced together the first bits of evidence we had fairly shortly. I mean, what, like this is 1927 and the thing happened in 1908. So within 20 years, he really went and documented it. Had it not been for his work, we um, we would probably not have like any kind of anything like the understanding that we have today. And who knows, it might have been lost to
0: history as well, too. Maybe, although I doubt it because, like, you can still see evidence of this today, which uh, is pretty amazing. It is,
1: for sure. Like, the fact that the, the you can still find trees laying on their sides, right? Or laying, yeah, on the
0: ground? Yeah, I mean, like, the forest has grown up around it, but that stuff is still there sometimes, you know, in some places. I would love to see that. Like, in so, person? Yeah, of course, in
1: person. It's just, I would definitely go in the summer.
0: But, um, so for those two weeks between late June and mid-July. Right. Before winter sets in in late July.
1: And I should also say, yes, I just saw it in the Wayback Machine, but you know what I mean.
0: Yeah, and this was like, uh, it's still not a populated area, so it's not like things have built up around it. It's, it's still largely the same as it was uh, back in 1908.
1: Yeah, there's a little, little, little town called uh, Vanavara. And uh, at the time, it was basically a trading post, and it's not much bigger now. It's really small. They have an airport, which is basically a strip of concrete that has been cleared, and um, y- you can get in and out of it. But it's it's uh, it's not an easy place to get to. It requires helicopters, horseback. Some people uh, uh, ride reindeer in on yeah. some of it. Uh, a lot of hiking. There's a lot of bears. There's a lot of wolves. But the blast site, the epicenter, is preserved in a uh, nature preserve in Siberia. So you could conceivably go study it, and people do. I think the most recent expedition was in 2013. And they're still trying to get to the bottom of it.
0: Yeah, and, and Kulik, I mean, he he took every available mode of transportation he could to get there, uh, over, I mean, it took him days and days and days over these expeditions to reach it, mm-hmm. and he was he was a brave dude and like very determined. So, um,
1: Kulik found a couple of other things. He found that the ground around the epicenter was actually um, scrunched up like a rug gets yeah. uh, from the blast, which must have been astounding to see on like a massive scale. But he also saw that there were holes, really like strange circular holes that were just a few yards deep, but uh, up to 50 or 100 feet in diameter. And he had no idea what he was looking at. He knew that it must have something to do with the explosion, but it's just peculiar. He hadn't seen those before. There was nothing in the, the literature to explain what he was looking at. And so some of the stuff that he documented... It was great documentation, and he was a very brave person for going and undertaking this this expedition. But he also laid the groundwork for basically um, everybody with a theory to come along and suggest that their theory was what explains the Tunguska event. And like you kind of referred to earlier, some of them are kind of out there. So let's take a little bit of break, and we're going to come back and get into some explanations for the Tunguska event. Including the real one. All right, Charles. You've heard of this before, right? Yeah. So, like, did you grow up with this? Was this one of the things you were just
0: aware of as a kid? No, it's, you know, something that I became aware of with the internet.
1: I think I heard about it from my Time Life Unsolved Mysteries books. Oh, sure. Which, just God bless those things. Those, the the set of those books, um, the Uncle John's Bathroom Readers and a David Letterman top ten list from the 90s book. Um, or probably are the three things that shape my brain more than anything else.
0: Yeah? Yeah.
1: <laughs> it says a lot. <laughs>
0: mad does. Magazine, too. You got to throw Mad in Oh,
1: there. yeah. I can't forget Mad. Sorry. Thank you for for, for saving me on that.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, here's some of the, the theories that have kind of come and gone over the years. Uh, as we said, the Q was that it was this meteor was swallowed up by the swamp south of the uh, impact zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, other people suggested that it was Lake uh, Chico in Italy and that they were just off by their uh, their mapping skills were poor. And so this was the actual impact crater and it is now a lake. Uh, but – now we think that they just didn't draw maps well back then because yeah. that wasn't on previous maps, and everyone's like, but now it's here, so that's what it is.
1: Right, right, yeah. But, there, I, yeah, like you are saying, I think it was just so remote and people weren't drawing maps of it that it just hadn't been bothered to be put
0: on. Exactly, which I totally believe. Um, I think the comet, I mean, are there people that still believe it yeah. was a comet?
1: Yeah, there are. Really? Yeah. Um, well, let me explain why. There, there have been surveys of the site that um, – are looking for traces of things that would be telltale signs that it was definitely a meteor. Um, Like, there are different kinds of meteors, but most meteors are either really stony, rocky, that it's basically like a chunk of earth, or it's like super metallic, it's basically like a big ball of metal or whatever. And there's like different, it's a spectrum, right? There's like, it can fall anywhere in between those totally rocky and totally metallic. Um, but the 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 stuff aboard are going to be basically the same things. It's just the, comp, the, the concentration of them. But one thing that you would find on like a meteorite is something like iridium or osmium. They're things you would find in Earth, but you have to go to the center of the Earth to find them. Uh, they're not on the surface. So if you find those things on the surface of Earth, it strongly suggests that a meteorite impacted Earth. Well, they've found not not much osmium or iridium around the Tunguska site. So they think mm, that actually is kind of a, a, a thing, that it, it suggests that maybe actually it was a comet, because a comet would have those things, but just not in high concentration because it would mostly be a big ball of ice. right. So that's kind of kept the comet thing alive as recently as just the last few years.
0: Yeah, well, they did surveys in the 50s, and they did find uh, space dust is probably the best way to say it. They did. It's true. Yeah, so uh, they found, you know, what was extraterrestrial rock dust. Uh, they found it in the area. They found it in the soil. Uh, and, it, and it does match the date of the event. Um, so... That to me means that the, the leading theory is probably correct, which is that a meteor exploded about three miles above land, um, which basically just blew it to dust. And that's why there aren't huge, huge chunks of rock laying everywhere.
1: Yeah. So that's that's the predominant theory right now, is that it was a meteor um, that blew up, like you said, I think something like a, a half a dozen miles over over the surface of the earth in the atmosphere. And it blew up so with such force that not only did it, it you know, cause the ground to, to buckle and bend and turn into like a rug and blow 80 million trees down over a couple hundred square miles, it also just blew itself and every any evidence of itself just into smithereens, into dust. And so that dust layer is the only remnants of it left. Um, but... The the problem is is they didn't know how that could happen. Like that's if you put all the evidence together, that's the picture it painted. But at the time, and until very recently, science was like, we don't know how something like that would happen. It seems like that is what happened, but how would that even happen?
0: Yeah, and it explains the the fireball in the sky because that's what you would expect to see uh, when a meteor is is trucking toward the Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, this thing was about 120 feet or larger in diameter. It was going about 33,000 miles an hour, uh, and it was hot, like super, super hot because of friction.
1: Right. So, the thing, this this huge rock, and they got all those numbers just basically reverse engineering the force of the explosion, right? Yeah. So that rock that's traveling so fast, what'd you say, like thirty-four thousand miles an hour or something like that? Yeah, I said thirty-three, but give or take a thousand miles. All right, who cares at that point, right? When it hits the atmosphere, it's suddenly met with that friction and gravity and drag and everything, and that these forces acting on it all of a sudden just destabilize it. And that the the pressure that's building up at the front of this huge rock is different by so much to the pressure behind it that the differential just destabilizes this rock and because it's traveling so fast and has so much energy and there's so much heat associated with it, it doesn't just break
0: up. It blows up. Yeah, what I'm surprised about it is that this hasn't happened more and it must just be a very specific combination of size and speed and heat. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh,
0: But I'm surprised that that doesn't happen more, that combination. Well,
1: some people are worried that it it could happen more. Like one of the um, predictions I saw is that a Tunguska-like event, we could expect it to happen over Earth maybe once every hundred to three hundred years. Yeah, but we haven't seen that. That hasn't played out, right? No, but um, some somebody who wrote an article I read pointed out, like the like there's not some some schedule that 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 rocks follow when they're coming into Earth's atmosphere. That's just not how things work. So. Um, we hope it's like that, but it's it's probably much less predictable than that. And we actually did a survey called um, Project Space Guard, I think, where we surveyed all of the near-Earth rocks, the big ones. And we found that none of the big ones are probably going to come near us anytime soon. But we found also that we had trouble f- seeing the small ones. And the small ones could still create like a Tunguska event, which, I mean, like you said, it happened over a pretty depopulated area and it still affected humans if it happened over in like a city a major city it would be just lights out for that that entire city yeah so the chances are pretty low that it would happen over a populated area just by you know virtue of the fact that we tend to populate in, in dense clusters while leaving also huge portions of the earth especially the oceans unpopulated where but if it did happen over over uh, a populated area, it would be really, really bad.
0: Yeah, I mean, they make movies about like fictional movies about that stuff. Right,
1: exactly. So hopefully it, it doesn't happen, but it could is the point.
0: Yes. And I always wonder, like, man, I'm surprised that it hasn't happened over like a big city, but like you said, that it's we always think like oh there's just people everywhere, but that's that's not the case.
1: Uh oh, well, like how our settlements are.
0: Yeah, like when you think about how large the Earth is, compared to where the the people are. Right. It's we're 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 not everywhere. Water is everywhere.
1: Right. No, it's true. So there, there. I think in 2013, Chuck, there was the Chelyabinsk um, meteor. Do you remember that
0: over Russia? Mm, I don't remember that.
1: There was a, a like it was very well documented because everybody has a a videotape camera on their cell phone these days, and um, there was a meteor that that basically did the same thing in T- Tunguska, except it was far far smaller. It was something like um, two thousand times more powerful than than Hiroshima. Now that wow. doesn't sound right. 30 times more powerful, I'm sorry. Well, Tung- Tunguska was up to 2,000 times more powerful. But it, like, blew the windows out of places. It knocked people down. And it really caught people's attention saying, like, hey, everybody, this is a real thing. That, that, that like, this can happen. And if a huge one happens over a population center, then we will be in trouble. So, I think it kind of caught the attention of the scientific community that, like, this is something we need to keep an eye on, literally.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah. Hopefully we will. I'm glad it's not up to me. (laughs) Uh, You got anything else?
0: I got nothing else.
1: All right. Well, if you want to know more about the Tunguska event, type that word in the search bar of your favorite search engine, and it will bring up all sorts of interesting stuff. And since I said that, it's time for listener mail.
0: Uh, I'm going to call this Letter from a Teacher. We love these. Uh, Hey, guys. I'm writing to thank you for helping me teach my AP psychology course. Uh, I have a degree in history and had taught just United States history and world history up until last year, Uh, but I wanted to thank you guys uh, for helping me teach my own class. Needless to say, I have a lot of self-teaching to do in order to prepare, and years of listening to Stuff You Should Know has prepared me uh, in a way that I was not expecting. As I taught the class, I found myself uh, referencing knowledge I picked up from you guys, including how to train a pigeon— uh stockholm syndrome umami interesting and the effects of uh bath salts on the brain it also seemed to me uh it also seemed at least once a class i would utter the words i listened to this podcast once and then dive into something like feral children and how that gives insight into development or how a social panic works uh even got a few uh, students to listen just a few Nice. Thank you for that. (laughs) Uh, All that's to say, thank you so much for what you guys do. You've given me confidence in the classroom and a constant stream of entertainment that isn't mind-numbing. And that is from Michael Jacobs from Fayetteville, Arkansas. And he came and saw us in St. Louis in May, uh, which is where he's from. Cool. And he said, uh, Josh, you actually ran into my sister on the street right before the show. I ran into a few people at St. Louis like more than usual and
1: everybody was super friendly.
0: Well, this was Samantha. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we're giving her a shout out. Hey, Samantha. So Samantha, Michael, Michael's sister, thank all you guys and ladies for the support.
1: Yeah, thank you everybody who came out to that show and actually all of our shows. You guys are really, we appreciate all of you for it. Heck yeah. Um, Actually, you can come out to our other shows. We've got some coming up. You can go to SYSKlive.com to find out where to see us all over the map in January heck so yeah uh, and if you want to get in touch with us follow us on social just go to know.com and you can find all the links there and you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com
0: for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com